Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by Diamond Hill's Chendor Virapan, and we'll be discussing some of the recent developments around the battle against COVID-19 and impacts to the healthcare and biotech industries. Chendor, one of our senior research associates, has a Bachelor's of Science in Computer Science, a Master's of Science in Biology from the University of Nebraska, a Master's of Bioscience Management from the Keck Graduate Institute of Applied Life Sciences, and a PhD in Genetics, Molecular, and Cellular Biology from the University of Southern California. As we continue to work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chendor. Chendor, welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're able to join me today so we can talk about some of the advances in the battle against COVID. Hi, Doug. Uh, Thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. There are now a variety of vaccines available to the public, uh, including Moderna and Pfizer. And, uh, you know, I think we got some news today on Johnson & Johnson. It's kind of waiting in the wings. I've heard quite often about how successful Israel has been in vaccinating their population. They seem to be the gold standard. How are we in the United States doing compared to what appears to be, you know, the best methodology of delivering the vaccine? Um, I think before we talk about the U.S., I think it's worth summarizing Israel. I mean, Israel did a phenomenal job with early and aggressive uh, vaccine procurement. That is super important. So they had the supplies and they also had um, a very effective distribution system across the country. More importantly, they have um, compulsory insurance system, which is essentially nationalized healthcare, and therefore everyone was covered and traceable. They also are pretty self-sufficient, and then they have used their military infrastructure to, um, to help distribute the vaccine, and they have a pretty good, uh, pretty good cold storage distribution system as well. So as a result, they've been able to vaccinate over 90% of people over 65. The goal is to get to 95% of citizens over 50 by early March. Um, so far, about 45% of the country has been vaccinated, which is pretty impressive. And early indications are the infection rates and hospitalizations have dropped pretty significantly. One could argue that it could be because of the recent shutdowns, but then the trend looked much steeper in the vaccinated population versus the non-vaccinated population. I mean, that information is very, um, very encouraging. And then we've also had a couple of data points that came up saying that um, the vaccines were able to halt the risk of spread by 90% and also prevented death in about 99% of people. Israel has, is, they're, they're pretty much along there. They're almost there. Um, they probably get to 60, 70, 80% vaccinated. And at that point, they can think about reopening. So they already are beginning to reopen. So they, they have pretty much like a staged re, um, reopening strategy. And it's based on local vaccination rates and infection rates. So I think that's a pretty smart thing to do. And they also have... Um, uh, a sort of a color-coded system where if you are vaccinated, you get a green pass. And if you have a green pass, you can get into more restricted areas like gyms and you know swimming pools and stuff like that. The key for me is to observe Israel um, in terms of how they reopen schools. You know, schools are hotbeds for infection. Um, we all know this. We also don't have vaccines for younger people. So the key is to reopen based on vaccination rates and also infection rates. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, My personal view is it's kind of hard to compare country to another country. So 
in our case, we vaccinated about 43 million people. Um, that's about 12, 13% of the population. If you compare it to Israel, Israel just has nine, 9 million people total. <laughs> so it's kind of hard to compare, but our, our government has procured a large supply of vaccines, but um, the current supply levels are not good enough. So we have to ration out uh, the supplies to different states. And ultimately the states are responsible for vaccinating people. I think having this decentralized system is kind of a problem. We had, we had pretty serious problems in the beginning. It's getting better now. But we had bottlenecks, and it's also it, it 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 was because you know different states had different ways of deciding who gets vaccinated and when. So there was a lot of initial confusion. We also had problems with manufacturing. We had problems with the coal distribution network. Um, and then you know, so you can see where I'm going with this. It's it's it, initially it was there were lots of hiccups, but more recently I think we've done pretty well. If you compare to other countries, we've done pretty well. I mean, Israel is more of an outlier. Um, you know, we had a large, diverse, a diverse country. Um, we can talk about the pros and cons of a system. For example, we don't have universal healthcare. Um, it's also very difficult to identify patients and trace them because many citizens are not even plugged into the healthcare network, which is you know, basically our uninsured um, population. So these are all problems, but I think eventually over time and supply catches up to increasing demand, I think we should be able to sort things out. So our trajectory may be not as you know, as fast as Israel would be in terms of achieving a certain amount of immunity. But I think we'll get there. But the most important thing, and I think we shouldn't forget this, is while we are doing vaccination, we should also get really good with disease, disease surveillance and also public health. Um, this could involve testing, you know, contact tracing, and pretty much keeping up, keeping our diagnostic infrastructure up and running uh, until, you know, we're completely done with this pandemic. So I think we should focus on the vaccines, but we shouldn't forget about the supporting infrastructure that goes into our path to normalcy. So Chendor, I've seen headlines and quotes that we could reach herd immunity sooner than we had originally expected. Mm -hmm. For those like myself, and I'm just admitting, I don't truly understand the concept of herd immunity. What does that mean exactly? And what are the implications for society if we can get there sooner? Sure. Um, so herd immunity is, you can think of it as indirect protection of compromised individuals. So some people even call it herd protection, which might be a more appropriate term to use here. So you can imagine, say like a herd of animals, like wildebeest in the Serengeti or something like that, and they're all running together. Uh, there is always the risk of a lion attacking them. Um, that risk is always there. It does, so just because they're together in a herd doesn't mean that they are immune to the risk. The risk is there, but the key is how many sufficient strong members of the herd can protect against the risk of a lion attacking the weak and the young? So if they have a, if they have a large number of uh, you know strong animals, they can reduce the risk. They can even reduce the severity of risk where someone can just escape with a bite rather than becoming lion lunch. Mm -hmm. So this means that if more and more people get immunized, then the probability of an unprotected individual in terms of getting an infection drops. So, so we have to expand that pool of immunized people. So that's essentially the, how herd immunity should work. So that depends on both. Uh, there, are, there are two facets to this. So one is the vaccinated population, which where you can get immunity. And the other bucket is basically the people who have gotten the virus naturally and have, and, and have recovered. So they are expected to have some level of immunity, which would also help the overall population. So the percentage needed 
uh, of herd immunity needed to effectively end the pandemic and the spread of the virus depends upon how infectious the virus is. So if you take Ebola or hepatitis, they're not as contagious. So we don't need that many people in the population to be vaccinated. Meanwhile, measles is extremely infectious. So we need a herd immunity rate at around 95%. So experts believe based on how infectious COVID is, we probably need a protection in the range of 60 to 70%. So that's the number, but it has in recent times crept up a little bit. We can talk about that later, but that's around the range in which we should achieve herd uh, immunity. So the, the thing about herd immunity also is it's a controversial topic. Um, it's also a theoretical construct. It's based on farm, uh, like mathematical models. It is also not a static number. So people have some like a number in mind and they stick to it, but it's, that's not really the case. Herd immunity depends on how susceptible a given population is. And it also assumes that um, societal behavior does not change in the model. So, but we know this is not true because we went from normalcy to a lockdown, uh, then to social distancing, and now we are back to a path to normalcy. So our behavior changes over time, and so does the so does the herd immunity threshold. Um, it it also has an implicit assumption that the virus behavior doesn't quite change, and we know that that is not really true as well because you have the appearance of new variants. Herd immunity, the, the ones who want to get there as fast as possible, some have suggested that, hey, let's just let people interact, like the Swedish model or something, where and then people get, uh, and, and the younger people get infected, um, they then develop immunity, and this could increase the percentage of people who have natural herd immunity, uh, and then they can get to the complete herd immunity with fewer fewer people vaccinated, or at least that is the general theory. And the problem with this is, while you're getting there to natural immunity with younger people, you can also kill or you know reduce the quality of life for those who are more susceptible. So there is a human cost to actually getting there. Even though we want to open the economy and improve our economy, um, there's also a human cost. There is also a cost to the people who are younger because there is a concept called uh, long COVID. What I mean by this is there are quite a few people who get COVID and they recover. That's well and good. But then there are also people who have symptoms that last months even. And I personally know two people who are still struggling and they got the, they got the virus months ago. So that is also a problem. It's also risky when we talk about herd immunity. So on the other hand, the most obvious thing to do, in my opinion, is let's vaccinate people as fast as possible. Because of natural herd immunity, we don't know if the immunity is strong enough, it's gonna, and how durable it could be. But with vaccines, we can actually track this information. We can actually, and plus viral, uh, plus a vaccine probably elicits a much stronger immune response than, this, than just a natural infection. So there's a bit of controversy with this. Like I, I know there was a couple of papers that came out or a couple of assertions that maybe the US is already at 50% herd immunity. Um, that's kind of a tricky question because, I mean, a tricky proposition because the herd immunity concept could be very local. I don't think you can extrapolate that to a whole country. So the, the idea behind this is, uh, the assumption is uh, when you test, you actually are under-reporting cases. So for every you know, one, one case that you detect, there are probably four others. So people use a multiplier um, with, the, with the testing data to come up with, herd immunity or what is the underlying herd, natural herd immunity in the population. So 
So I think that multiplier is what's causing all the confusion. I don't think we should be we should apply that broadly. Um, for example, you can imagine a population where there is one chunk of people who are who interact a lot, who have to work, say, in factories or meatpacking plants or something like that. And then you have another subpopulation within it that is isolating and, and they are high risk. Now, you can run tests in that population and you realize that, oh, wow, the, the infection rate is X. Let's multiply X by four. And we realize that, oh, wow, th these guys have 50% herd immunity. Um, so let's just vaccinate 20% and then try and open the economy. Now that could lead to a disaster because as soon as you change social behavior with lower vaccination rates, assuming that a, a huge percentage of the population is, is immune, then you can run into trouble. So it's, it's a very tricky thing. For example, Los Angeles um, has pockets of both high herd immunity and low herd immunity. So places like Pasadena has low herd immunity, but then places like Boyle Heights has high, high herd immunity. So I don't think we can generalize it and we have to be very careful, but I do recognize that it's a polarizing uh, topic. So the truth is somewhere in the, in, the, in, in the middle, I would say. So I think the right thing to do is to achieve herd immunity, but achieve it with very high vaccination rates. So I think that's how herd immunity plays into the whole, um, in the whole drive for vaccination. But I also have to you know, kind of insert a little bit of negative news here. So it is possible that we might not reach herd immunity anytime soon. I mean, there are projections that say it could be April, that I think that's too aggressive. Um, some people say it could be in the summer, maybe late summer. Um, but then there are models that say that we probably wouldn't even have it until maybe next year. And there are a few reasons for this. One is we are seeing new variants. That's a problem. Um, we have to convince younger people to take the vaccine. That's another problem. And we also know that new, the newer vaccines that are coming out after mRNA, so you can, you know, like the viral vector and the protein vaccines are not especially, not really as good as mRNA vaccines, although they do reduce the risk of death and hospitalizations pretty significantly, but in terms of efficacy, they're not as good. So in aggregate, perhaps the efficacy of the virus is not as high, which means we have to vaccinate a lot more people. So this could extend the, you know, the time period be, uh, between now and achieving herd immunity. I think these are the kind of moving parts when you associate herd immunity with uh, vaccination. Yeah, herd immunity sounds uh, sounds pretty dangerous, actually. If you, if you don't do it the right way or there are too many variables, you could, uh, as you said, kind of falsely have that sense of security where you think you have herd immunity and you open things up and it, it causes even more calamity in the future. Exactly. Um, and, al and also there's a concept of reinfection too. So mm -hmm. um, I don't really know what the rate of reinfection would be for a vaccinated person versus a person who has um, recovered naturally. So there's also that. So you, you can say that, hey, I've, I've gotten COVID before and I'm fine, but you could still be at risk and you can infect others as well. So that's, that's also another risk. So even though we've got these lights at the end of the tunnel with the vaccine, there's always going to be some kind of, it feels like always going to be some kind of concern uh, around COVID, which is, which is no good. Yeah. The percentage of people below 18 in this country is probably like 25%. Mm -hmm. So, and we don't have vaccines for them yet. I mean, we should be getting data around summer and hopefully we'll get that approved. Um, and then it's also, I mean, do parents want to vaccinate their children? That's another question. But the whole point is, if we don't have a vaccine for children, which that means you're only left with 75% of the population, 
that means we probably have to vaccinate everyone <laughs> to, yeah. to, to reach that threshold. So, yeah, that's we. Have, I've got a 17 year old, so she's on that cusp of. I think maybe one of the one of the vaccines works for her. Or she's allowed to have it. I'm not. I'm not sure. We're obviously going to look into that, but we've got a ways to go. Um, so as we receive this good news regarding the vaccine, one of the things that you referenced uh, just a bit ago were, were the variants, specifically mm-hmm. South African variant, the UK variant is what we hear about in the news a lot. Mm-hmm. What does this mean with regards to the success that we've already achieved? So are we going to take a step backwards? Could these variants kind of derail all the progress that we've made and potentially lead to the return of shutdowns because they're more contagious and you may not be protected? Um, it is possible, but for, so far, I think the data suggests that current vaccines could still be helpful. Um, so, you know, we are always going to get variants. There's no question. I mean, there are thousands of strains of coronavirus in the world. So each time a strain comes up, we shouldn't really panic. Um, there is a concept called antigenetic drift. What this means is you can have just random mutations that sometimes confer some advantage to the virus, sometimes it doesn't. And you're gonna get these strains from time to time. So sometimes you would get something that is more infectious, could be more deadly. So the theory is the, uh, the UK strain and the South African strain are probably more, uh, they're more infectious, they're probably more deadly. So we don't really know, but then Peter's studies have shown that uh, the, the levels of our antibodies against the original COVID could still be protective um, for these strains for now. So, I mean, that's, that, that's good news. So the, 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 you know, the biggest risk would be if there is something, if something called antigenetic shift happens. So this could be a drastic change to the virus and that could happen because of recombination between two different strains or something like that. If someone is co-infected, um, the flu virus does this all the time. But with, uh, with, with COVID, you know, it, it, it could also happen. In fact, there has been descriptions of the, the Kent or the UK strain um, acquiring some traits of the South African strain. Um, so far, the studies have shown that it's still fine. I mean, our vaccines will still work. So it's, it's always gonna be there. Maybe it wouldn't be as often, like you wouldn't get a new variant as often as the flu because I think the flu virus, you know, it, it, it it's, it, its genome is constructed differently. It's more prone to uh, re- antigenetic shift. Um, its mutation rate is like 4X, I think, uh, of, of, of COVID. So COVID will evolve, maybe not as fast. And I think our system, as long as we keep up our surveillance, um, as long as we keep up testing and, and we sequence as, you know, as we go so that we can kind of you know, collect the database of these strains. And then if something does break out, as long as the, 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 the reservoir for an opportunity for the virus doesn't exist, it's not gonna mutate that quickly and form new strains. What I'm trying to say here is we have to protect ourselves. So we have to vaccinate as many people as possible. So the opportunity for the virus to experiment with its own genome is lower. Now, at the same time, there could be a selection pressure on the virus. So if you keep squeezing the virus into smaller, smaller reservoirs and smaller, smaller populations, it is possible that it could break out, but at least when it breaks out, it's an endemic. And as long as we have surveillance and we're tracking this very closely, we can actually shut it down quickly. So, you know, like we, we had an opportunity to do that in Wuhan, um, but it escaped, right? But as long as we keep our surveillance up, I think when new strains come along, we shouldn't panic. 
we should take this one step at a time. And then if we really need a booster vaccine, um, companies have said that they're ready to go. So as, as so once these things roll out um, in the future, maybe next year, the year after, if we need a booster dose, then our, we should have enough capacity to actually address the problem. Biotech and healthcare firms have been laser focused on vaccine development and have you know gotten through it with in, in record time. Uh, and through this focus, you know they, they are also continuing to evolve their approach to vaccine development. And one of the things you and I have talked about a couple of different times, and you've mentioned it uh, today, is is mRNA and uh, its uses. And so, what are some of the looking beyond COVID? What are some of the other potential uses? for some of the science that's been developed um, over the last, let's call it year, year and a month or so in fighting vaccines or in using it elsewhere? Right. I think, I, I think yeah, I think I have to plug science in a little bit here because <laughs> I, I would say that to me personally, I've been in science, I don't know, I did science for like maybe 15 years and then I've been doing finance for the last five, six years. But in my, you know, for the last 20, 30 years, I have seen a few breakthrough discoveries. And I would say the, the speed in which we've been able to get mRNA into the marketplace is just like a watershed moment. I think it's just a testament to what these companies are able to do. But I also have to say that mRNA itself has been around for 20, 30 years. It's been a lab tool for a very long time. I've used it in the past. So it's it's not new, but people have been working on this for 20 years tirelessly, and they have slowly advanced the frontier to a point where they made it safe enough, they made it stable enough, and they made it effective enough so that it could eventually be injected into, um, into a human. So it wasn't like we all of a sudden came up with mRNA. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's been decades in the making. It's just that everything was, you know, everything just sped up, <laughs> and then we have this breakthrough. So I think I have to, you know, they're like, uh, like a hats off to my colleagues. Like, I am really proud of what they've accomplished. So, and the thing about mRNA is it's a very natural phenomena. So, the, you know, if, you know, in grade school and college, you learn about the central dogma of molecular biology. What that means is you have a genome, your DNA, but you have to convert that to protein so that that protein would make you a human. But the middle step is you have to convert the DNA into something called RNA or mRNA. And the mRNA has the instructions to make the protein. So that's basically what um, scientists have co-opted to make a vaccine. So they put the spike protein, which is a mutated protein of the virus in an mRNA, they inject it, and then the cells make the, the spike protein, and then it displays that to the immune system. The immune system picks it up and then, and then basically is able to recognize the spike protein when an, when an actual virus actually enters the system. So that's what mRNA does. So you can imagine if you can produce that protein, the S spike protein, you can produce any protein. And so, and, and plus it's produced intracellularly, like an, in a natural process. So you can have proteins that work within a cell. You can have a protein that is secreted. You can have a protein that sits on the cell wall. So all of a sudden, you know, the whole, like a lot of things open up for you. So I think the most, I, I think the, the most near term application after COVID would be essentially keeping the technology ready to go for any infectious outbreak. So, you know, so if you have like a, like a new SARS or, or a Zika virus or chikungunya, um, we should be able to produce vaccines quickly um, and also scale it up very quickly. So I think when it comes to emerging diseases or emerging infectious diseases, I think that's where you put mRNA. I wouldn't really say that you want to make an mRNA measles vaccine. 
because measles vaccines are extremely, the current ones are extremely effective and they're safe. So I think it's a waste of resources to kind of, you know, reinvent the wheel with mRNA. But I think for emerging infectious diseases, yes. Um, and the thing is, we have, we at Diamond Hill have been aware of mRNA even before COVID. So when we were doing research on Roche's pipeline, Roche is actually uh, partnered with BioNTech even before Pfizer partnered with BioNTech. And Roche partnered with BioNTech for the mRNA technology, not for the vaccine, but actually for a cancer vaccine. So the way this works is they are focused on personalized medicine. So if, if I have a cancer and you have a cancer, our cancers are not alike, even though it's classified the same, say skin cancer or something like that, because cancer is genetically heterogeneous. So each of us have its own profile. Each, each of our own cancers have their own profile. So idea is let's take the cancer, let's sequence it, let's find out what gene is driving the cancer that's outside of the common genes that cause the cancer. It's a, it's a unique protein. So you kind of isolate that and you realize, huh, that's the protein we need for the immune system to recognize. Let's make an mRNA with that sequence, put it in the either injected directly into the cancer itself or, or, or inject it more systemically. And then, you know, basically do the same thing that the COVID mRNA vaccine does, which is try and hone into the cancer, detect the cancer and kill it. So that's something that Roche is working on with, with BioNTech. But then there are like many other um, applications. So, I mean, I don't think people are aware, but CRISPR uses a similar technology, which is it uses a piece of RNA as a guide to basically do gene editing. So you can do gene editing with, uh, um, with this technology. You can also do protein replacement. I mean, there are a lot of rare diseases where you're born with a mutation. You're not able to make something that your body needs and then you, know, you, you get sick and it's usually you're young. So you can use mRNA as a way to produce a protein that you're missing. That's one way. Um, another way is mRNA does not just make protein. I mean, there are different types of mRNAs. We don't have to get into the technicals, but the point is mRNA can also regulate the genome itself. It can cause other genes to express. It can shut down other genes. So you can design MR, like RNA particles um, and deliver it just the way we do for the mRNA vaccine and regulate our own genome. So you can do cellular reprogramming, that's what they call it. And then you can also do gene expression regulation. Um, the, other, the other thing you can do is, you know, immunology is a big field. It's pretty much a black box. We have medications that are effective, but it's not really effective. I mean, people always, you know, they, refer, they refract for the medicine. So you can actually hone in on certain immunomodulatory proteins that cause a certain autoimmune disease, for example. And you can actually use the mRNA to modulate your immune system. So again, I mean, I can, I can imagine so many things we can do with mRNA, but the, but the point is the, the, the nuts and bolts of the, of the system or the way it works has been known for a long time, but it took a lot of time to optimize, say, the nanoparticle that, it's, that, that surrounds it, um, the stability of the mRNA, um, making changes to the nucleotide so that it's, it's more robust in its response, it's more robust in its expression. So there are like many technical things and we've kind of, kind of figured it out with, with the mRNA vaccine first and now it's off to the races. So next five, 10 years with mRNA is gonna be pretty exciting. Gendor, I wanna thank you for joining me. You're, you're quickly becoming my favorite guest on the podcast because every time you're on, I'm learning something new and uh, learning how little I truly know. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, you know, I wish you and your family nothing but the best. And we're definitely going to have you on here uh, once more. 
Likewise. Thank you so much, Doug. I appreciate your time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.